Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You are listening to Linux in the Hampshire. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Hello and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 289 of Linux in the Hampshire. And we are going to do a special little Q&A roundtable, whatever you want to call it, type show with the usual cast of characters. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And Bill. (laughs) Did we lose Bill somewhere? And Bill. (laughs) Bill. Hello, Bill. There we go. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Is he gone? Oh, he's gone. All right. That's all right. We'll we'll get back to Bill. Bill is here. Any four RD. So uh, we also have um, Don KB two YSI who is muted. So if you don't want to say anything, Don, that's fine. I'm just going to let people know that you are here. If you want to speak up, you're certainly welcome to. I'll uh, acknowledge you if your little mute microphone goes away. Uh, but beyond that, we also have in our chat with us tonight, John. Mad Dog Hall, who has been in the open source Unix, Linux, BSD, you know, PDP7s we've been learning about world for long, long time. So I would love it, John, if you would tell everyone who doesn't know you, which is probably one or two people, just let everyone know a little bit about yourself who uh, hasn't been able to see or interact with you on the open source circuit or been to all of the wonderful places that you go and go to the, you know, all the conferences that you go to, uh, so we can find out a little bit more about you. I was born in 1950. Back in those days, I went to, I took electronics class in high school and we would take apart old TVs and old radios and stuff like that to, out of them so that we could rebuild them into new things because a single transistor 50 cents a um transistor would cost two dollars and fifty cents and that was when a dollar fifty cents would buy five gallons of gasoline we would just take all these you know tubes sometimes tubes tvs and stuff apart rewire them so i wanted to be an electrical engineer and that's what i went to drexel i didn't really have as good a grasp on math back in those days as I do now. I would always find that I would understand Calculus 1 as I was trying to pass Calculus 2. And I might be able to suffer through Calculus 2 problems when I was doing Calculus 3. And then we got to this on the plus transforms where I just thought that was so crazy I must have misunderstood something and ready to drop out of Drexel become a forest ranger. When this correspondence course through the Western Electric Company. And it was how to program the IBM 1130 in. This was so long ago. Fortran 2, Fortran 4, Fortran 77, Fortran 90, High Performance Fortran. No, any of those. It was just Fortran, capital letters, thank you. And you punched paper cards. 
and you ran your program one at a time through the computer, linking in into your program, kind of like you do with the Arduino today, to your program, and you ran your program. This. It was just so refreshing because this was just pure logic. I just felt a natural match for it. And so after a period of time, I said, well, you know, I'm going to get out of this thing and I'm going to get into a program called commerce and engineering, half business and half engineering with a minor in this computer things because there was no computer science degree in 1973. And if you wanted to do something with computers, you were a physicist and wrote programs for physics to help you solve your problems. You were a chemist, chemistry to help you solve your problems, you know, as a professional programmer who spent their whole life writing programs for somebody else. In fact, I had a professor along towards graduation who will never make a living as a professional programmer. <laughs> Strange, because he taught programming, okay? And he was right. I mean, I still have a couple more years before I retire, so he may have been right. I mean, you know, I, I may not make a career out of professional programming. All this up. In those days, when you wrote a program to somebody else, not normally, because you weren't in that business. You weren't in the business of selling software or a chemist or an educator. That was your business. But you took your program and you contributed it the Digital Equipment Corporation User Society from DEC, AIR, from IBM, or Brainstorm from Novell, or a bunch of other different libraries. And they would make up catalogs of the programs. The catalog, it was a paper catalog. There was no internet. There was no web back in those days. So you paid $15, which was a lot of money. Catalog, and you went through the paper catalog to find the programs you wanted that would work on your machine. Your money to them, and a couple days, a couple weeks later, you would get this on a piece of paper tape that you could then feed into your ASR thirty three teletype, hopefully. And that was what you did. And you would go to a Deacus meeting, and you would run into one of these people who did this. You say, "Oh man, that was really a great program. Thanks a lot. It really helped me out. Hey, that was a great program, and I have some changes that we can make and make it even better. Would you accept them? Oh, that was a great program. Let me buy you a beer for dinner." Well, let me give you a job. And this is why we write free software today. Binary-only software did exist, but you might pay like $100,000 a copy to have a EULA, an end-user license agreement. You had contract law. You wrote a contract, and you negotiated that contract over a period of perhaps weeks or months. And you would, the contract would say, how many computers could you put the, could you put the software one in? and all sorts of stipulations about it. Of course, you would get the source code to keep because you paid $100,000 for it. That was the way the software was written back in those days. The concept of binary-only software didn't really come around until CPM and MS-DOS and, and others like that, you know, several years later. And how long it took for somebody to be able to apply copyright to software at all that the first copyrights were actually applied to ROMs with ones and zeros in them for games. And games from simply being copied, that was where copyright came in. And software patent were even later. Those days, you know, binary software is the anomaly after free and open source software. 
Well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe. So, so what exactly do you do now? What would you say you do on a day to day basis, other than you know deal with your current issues? Like, what 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 would you consider yourself to be an evangelist, uh, someone who just talks about open source, someone who's an educator? What what's your what's your field at the moment? Oh. Let me talk about a little bit about my career and what I did. So when I got out of university, I went to work for a very large insurance company, Aetna Life and Casualty, commercial user of IBM equipment in the free world, which goes to show if you put enough adjectives after your name, you can be the best of anything. What they did, they had a three-acre computer center. They automatically ordered two of everything that IBM announced. Salespeople had to call. If IBM announced it, send one to the research division to see how they could use it and send another one directly to the floor and, and prepare to use it because they knew they could use it. I remember that I wrote the device driver for the IBM MVS operating system for 53330 disk drives on one file of one system. Couldn't write that. They didn't have 53330 disk drives to test it with. Only Aetna could afford that. We had 500,000 magnetic tapes in our tape library on site with another 100,000 tapes in a salt mine in Idaho for long-term storage. We had a mainframe computer. Its sole function was to tell us where any particular magnetic tape was located, whether it's in the tape library or in some system on site. Place for a kid right out of university. Programs in COBOL. I wrote programs in IBM assembler language. My job was not to write new programs. My job was to take other people's programs and run them, make them run faster. My boss told me if I couldn't make them run at least twice as fast, don't bother. And from there, I got one of the first master's degrees in computer science from Resident Polytechnic Institute. After that, I decided to go teach at Harper State Technical College. I taught there for three and a half years, who did had never seen a computer in real life. There were no computers in high schools. There were no computers at home. Or had seen a real computer only on TV or in movies, never having seen a computer to writing a simple operating system or compiler time. There, I went to work for Bell Laboratories. That's where I saw Unix for the first time. Unix Systems Administrator, when I'd never seen a Unix system before in my life. And they said to me, do this. I said, yes, if you have a book. And after three and a half years of working there, I left and went to Digital Equipment Corporation and joined the Unix programmer, I was a product manager, I was doing technical marketing. And in 1994, I met Linus Torvalds, who at the uh, version 1.0 of the Linux kernel had just come out. But this was something that was really good. This is something more a technical thing, a hobbyist, real commercial value. And it had value beyond any commercial system could have, free and open. And so I got Linus his first 64-bit computer, helped an engineering team to help him into a 64-bit computer from being 32-bit, onto a RISC processor from being only CISC at that point. After I had done that for about five years, go off, leave Digital Equipment Corporation around the world, talking about how to use free software to save money or make money products. Give governments money People can look at the source code and see if there are trap doors in it to, for kids to learn how computers really work. And uh, I left a very good job. I was making about $124,000 a year plus benefits. And uh, very frankly, I've never made 
and renew that in other ways. So what do I do now? Well, I'm working on a project down in Brazil. Your buyer in Brazil can cost as much as $150 because of import fees and all that type of stuff. And we're working on a project down there to create an open and like computer. It's a lot better. We're not going to sell it for just $35. We can't quite meet that price point from the $150 that you would have to pay for the Raspberry Pi. And it's actually part of the Brazilian Internet of Things program, which also includes a little sensor computer, a micro. Uh, and as that comes out, I'm also Project Cal One, which helps university students afford. In Latin America, most of the federal and state universities are free of tuition. And of the kids who qualify education have to turn it down. They're too poor to be able to afford the apartment, the food, the internet, transportation, city where the university is. And Project Kawan takes these kids who have been helping their families fix and maintain the computers ever since they were eight years old, people who need help live. And we teach the kids how to run their own business, how to make money, 24 hours a week, part-time. They make enough money to be able to live, to extend their education to be six years instead of four, six years anyway. And so, and in the end, they have their own business that they can sell off and make money to incoming freshmen, start their own. Some of the things I'm working on, the Chairman Emeritus of WIT Corporation, kind of a stealth startup. They're into networking, cloud, and... Uh, on as a, uh, what would you call it, mascot, I guess. So while I give them sage pieces of insight. Those are the things I'm doing now. All right. In another two years, I plan on retiring, where instead of me going to see people, they'll have to come see me. <laughs> My retirement project is Mad Dogs Monastery and Marina. Of math, <laughs> music, microcomputing, microbrewing, microwinery, microdistillery, and bait shop. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to have to go visit that. Where are you planning on setting up this business? Because uh, hopefully it's here in the U.S. Well, I don't have any firm plans of where. Um, I do have criteria. It has to be in a place that's warm enough that the students can go barefoot year-round. You can watch the sun going down over a large body of water, but that could be on the east side of a large bay or the east side of a very large river. Um, Don't really have any firm plans at this point well Political i think you i think you've excluded new hampshire and massachusetts from your plans more or less yeah <laughs> but it could be it could be costa rica it could be brazil it could be a number of different places but i want to see some political issues cleaned up a way to go as you as as you and and, and and maybe some of your listeners may know i am gay well, or, if they if they didn't, they do now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came out about eight years ago, I think. Now it was uh, Alan Turing's 100th birthday. Fourth, I came out very openly through a blog I wrote for Linux Magazine. Disturbed at the time about the amount of hate oriented towards people, choice, and what they were. And gave myself. I knew it was not a choice. What really disturbed me was all the kids who are being thrown out of their homes and committing suicide and stuff like that. So, and, and, and geeks who are also gay had a double whammy. So I wanted the kids to know 
that there was one geek of a good life does have good life do, here. Do me a favor and, and you dropped out there, so do me a favor and say that again. You said you wanted you wanted them to know there was one geek who there was one geek who has a good life and basically doesn't care what other people think. Orientation wife i've tried to treat you to treat people honestly and love everybody had a lot of people come up to me and say thank you for coming out thank you for saying the things you do so this is another reason why i do the open source stuff not not because of the gay factor or anything the lgbtq factor but i have people come up to me and say i listen to you if technical officer of my company i listen to you and now I'm the CEO of my company, and I employ 60 people, and I give jobs to them. Thank you for giving the support to Linux that you have. There's lots of people that have done as much or more for Linux than I have. I mean, Richard Stallman, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I do admire him for the work he's done in the GNU software, the work he's done on the GPL and things like that. Admire a lot of the engineers who have contributed time and effort, you know, late into the night, good pieces of software out there. I tip my hat to them. So it's fair to say, without without Richard Stallman and Linus Torvalds and the other big players in this, I mean, GNU Linux would certainly not be a thing. There might be something similar, but it would not be the way it is today, for sure. Well, I mean, Richard did have, or does have his herd project, right, the microkernel. Yeah, we've talked about that some on the program, and we we follow it every time there's a little snippet of a news story that comes out that talks about the microkernel architecture and the GNU herd project and stuff like that. But it's few and far between, and I don't know that there's ever going to be any traction in that respect. I I remember you talking a little bit before this where you mentioned some of the early development of the kernels and portability between systems, and that kind of sounded like a microkernel architecture, but I don't know that that's gained any traction. In the technical aspects of what a microkernel is, it was not. However, as opposed to the operating systems of the day, where they were putting all of this functionality inside of the kernel, it was a big thing. So let me tell you why it's important. The more functionality you put inside the kernel, the more likely you are to have some type of bug, which is going to cause the entire kernel to crash at the kernel. It's just a user space thing. And you can start it up again in a fraction of a second, the whole system crashing. And this is one thing that people complain about how big the Linux kernel is. is constantly trying to push stuff out of the kernel into user space. Kernel can become more stable do you think uh, do, you, do you think that modularizing the atomic kernel is getting is approaching the microkernel architecture or do you think it, you know do you think it's a like the method of making the architecture more microkernel like okay so we have to get into the definition of what is a microkernel and basically a microkernel is a very very small kernel that only does a couple things it schedules a process memory and it starts I.O. Everything else, everything else about a kernel is some type of message passing routine to something in user space that could then do this. And this is why microkernels multiple personalities. You could have a microkernel that looks just like Windows. You get, and then the same microkernel could look just like Apple. 
and another one looks at the same microkernel at the same time on the same machine, something else, because all these personalities are out in user space. The problem with that is that creates a certain amount of inefficiency. Just can't get around it. You can have all sorts of tricks that were efficient, but there's still going to be some percentage, maybe 3% less efficient, Similar with the stopwatch that say, oh, computer, or your operating system gives me 3,000 TCPs a second, and the microcode only gives me 2,999 TCPs a second, I'm going to go with yours. Maybe they might care in the future if it was shown to be more stable feature that they really like the time. They care about speed and efficiency. I mean, we, we experienced this with DECOSF1. DECOSF1 was based on the mock microkernel from Carnegie Mellon University. It was built and architected, you know, and Digital Equipment Corporation spent some hours of engineering time trying to make that microkernel efficient as they could. But let's go back to Richard and the herd and, and why kernel was so important. If you go back to May of 1994, at that time, operating system called Windows NT. It was started by a digital engineer named Dave Cutler, who was out of Bellevue, Washington, and went to work for Microsoft, a kind of a microkernel-based system with personalities. Windows NT, so, so for years before that, the Unix vendors were seeding the desktop to Microsoft Windows. You know, Unix was on the servers, proprietary systems were on the servers, you know, that was their stuff, and Microsoft, everybody said, yep, Microsoft had some stuff. But now, the NT system was a server system, was moving into the server space. The Unix servers and proprietary servers were terrified of this. O'Reilly, Mr. Tim O'Reilly, who had a, a list of books and, and got that, they were based on Unix systems, and Unix commands and stuff, he'd already abandoned Unix. He was bringing out books about how to program Windows NT. Then along came this thing called Linux, and it stopped in its tracks because you could take off equipment that was no longer any good, and you could turn it into shell servers, you could turn it into DNS servers, you could turn it into firewalls. People started using Linux for these things, even though there were no applications for it. In 98, a most amazing thing happened. Database companies started to port. And if you ever brought out an operating system back in those days, you'd, you'd create your operating system, you'd have it on your hardware, B, you'd get Mathematica to port. It had this tiny little engine, it was very easy for them to port. They were always looking for the fastest, best price performance thing they could get. They would port, and they ported was the database engines. And once you got the database engines to port, now you had a real application that people could use. And Informix was the first company to say, yeah, we're going to port, we're going to support Linux. And Oracle got wind of their announcement. And three days before, Oracle said, oh, yeah, we're going to port sometime in the future. But nonetheless, all the different database engine, engines started as a big thing. And then in the year 2000, another, well, actually, in 1994, in 1994, a really amazing thing happened. Companies were going out of business, DL. They were all collapsing. Millions of dollars to create the next computer, and then they only sell like three of them. 
NASA needed supercomputing. There are problems. Problems dealing with fluid dynamics. Dynamics is every place. Glass in your windows, that's really a fluid. It's a super cool fluid. It flows. Heat going through steel is a weather, is a fluid. Ocean temperatures, ocean currents, all fluids. And they needed to solve these fluid problems. Solve them. But they didn't afford the computers to solve them. And two guys, Donald Becker, NASA, of the Beowulf system, of dividing up these problems into many, many parts, solving them in parallel and bringing the problems back together again. And they did this crappy Intel PCs running Linux. Overnight, there was a cottage industry of people trying to build Beowulf, ever bigger Beowulf systems. The corporation had a whole industry, a billion dollar per year industry of just taking alpha processors and racking them up and selling them to people to solve these really large problems. 1994 was Beowulf systems. 1998 was databases. In 2000, came along another interesting thing. But until that time, more or less standalone boxes. Box doing something and you ran an operating system, a proprietary operating system from some company who made it. Then something else happened. A whole bunch of different architecture CPUs came out. People that wanted to use these embedded systems say, well, I want to have your embedded system on this architecture. That would have been okay, except to be able to talk to the internet. And all the people who had been working on, oh my God, two things. Number one, TCPIP stacks are hard. They're not easy. TCPIP stack is really difficult. It takes a lot of time. Was it has to be secure to talk to the internet. You can't let people from the internet come in and disrupt your embedded system. This triple whammy. We need a secure system that, oh, by the way, needs to run across all these weird processors. So it has to have compilers for them. It costs a lot of money. And they looked around and they found one, and it was called Linux. Overnight, Linux became the most used operating system in new embedded system starts. First, once you create one embedded system, you duplicate it a thousand times. A bit later, there was another need for the phone. It's on FreeBSD. And they were just taking the phone market by storm. So this unlikely company called Google, we're going to create another operating system we use as its core, the Linux kernel. So they quickly put together an operating system and a whole ecosystem around that. And even though you can argue about the quality of Apple stuff and everything, there's one thing they miss. And that's the fact that people don't care about that level of quality or integration. They're more interested in the fact they can actually afford the phone. You are a hardware manufacturer could put Android on your hardware. Just say the word Android. But yet try and get Apple to support your hardware. It's not going to happen. That's why now outselling iOS... Android goes on to tablets and even netbooks and things like that. A bunch of different hardware vendors to say, buy my hardware with Android on it. Apple will continue, without a doubt, to be a very successful, very profitable company. They're going to hold a smaller portion of the market. Well, I think one of the things that Apple prides themselves on is having control of the hardware aspect of their 
environment as well because when you when you meet the hardware with the software and you build to it you get a more seamless integration between the two whereas android can be a little bit clunky and flaky because it does spread out it does uh advertises being compatible with more systems and it i mean we've talked before about the fact that linux in general is basically taking over the world in a quiet way by being in most embedded systems iot devices and so on and so forth there's uh, some debate in my mind whether android is linux in its purest sense because they don't really do the upstream push and stuff like that but it is a little more broad it does address more hardware it's it's more compatible in a broader sense i think where where apple tries to pair itself with its hardware vendors uh to make a more seamless integration absolutely and uh I mean, I worked for Digital Equipment Corporation, so I was well aware of the to take digital Unix, just tune it specifically to the alpha. You know, we could make it very, very, very stable. You know, we, we had instances of people that would not reboot their, their systems. This isn't a crappy desktop. This is a server system for a year or two years. I mean, just as good. I mean, we had, while the system was running... And we've done this. We were doing this back in 19, or even earlier than that. I tell people I was using a virtual machine in 1973. I was using IBM's VM system virtual machine in 1973. That machine in mid-instruction execution, and I could store away the entire machine's uh, configuration and state, okay, and bring it back up and start exactly on the instruction that it left off with. VMware came out many years later. I kind of yawned and said, what else is new? <laughs> well, it was solving a whole bunch of other problems, right? I mean, you know, they, they didn't have the simple problem of working on one machine architecture. People were just gall-struck about VMware. I'm going, so, it, you know, it is a lot easier when you have full control of the hardware. Now, are putting your software on top of it. And you have full control of all the stacks of that. And basically, the only thing you don't have control of the user application. What did, which is very nice, was they created a style guide. Exactly how you were supposed to write your programming. Exactly how you were supposed to store your data so that everything looked like it was written by one program. In the Linux space, we don't have that yet. We still have fights between KDE and GNOME as to what you know, library you should use. and Various desktops as to how you should look and stuff like that. Their favorite desktop and their favorite you know, graphical interface and stuff. And there's a lot of people that like choice. Even if it does look a little clunky, that doesn't always fit together. Yeah, I agree. I think we definitely try and promote choice and, and advocate for choice in, in whatever form it comes in in the open source world, wherever possible. We probably need to start wrapping up here, and I do want to address some feedback that we've gotten uh, over the last month or so because we've been kind of behind on that. But I did want to ask you one more question, John, before we kind of roll into some business kind of things on here. And 
ask you where you think Linux is going and where its strong suit is going to be going forward. I know there's a lot of talk pretty much every year about being the year of the Linux desktop, but I honestly think (laughs) we've conquered the IoT market. We've conquered embedded systems. We're in infotainment. We're in driverless cars. We're pretty much everywhere you can put an embedded system phones tablets etc so everyone's using it whether they know it or not but is there a reason or a need or indeed a possibility of a surge in linux desktop or are we just going to take everything else over and we just don't care about the desktop i mean there's a lot to be said for that um you know these days there's a lot of people that their interface to computing and to the and to the internet is and you know, and of course, the cell phone for the most part is running is running Android, and 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 actually, that another thing that's happening right now is this whole thing with the United States and Huawei, where you know the United States is saying, "Hey, we don't trust you," and Huawei is going off and say, "Well, we've got our own operating system that we've already built and we're going to be releasing in October of 2019, and it's going to be Android compatible." Da 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 da. If the United States isn't careful, island of our own stuff go off and they're going to say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to do deals with Russia, we're going to do deals with, you know, Europe, we're going to do deals with, they've already done deals with Canada and some places in Europe and Russia and Africa and stuff and the United States has to understand that we're no longer the bully pulpit. But in any case, um, there's also this place that there's a lot of people around the world who really can't afford expensive laptops. Tops like Pine sixty four is coming out with that are ninety nine bucks for a decent laptop that will give you a nice little screen. And there's the other the people that are working on through kind of a casting type of thing, or you know, we're, we're about to come out with USB 4.0, 20 gig, no forty gigabits per second, and have multiple screens. Your and you know, and your phone can become your computer if it hasn't already. Okay. If it hasn't already, and, and Unix has, maybe Linux has one. It's just a, they call it Android. <laughs> the new Linux, I don't know. The Android, there's a certain amount of it, which is, you know, the big, the, the big thing is to want to use open source code, or are they still going to be using closed source code? The answer to that is, I think there's a lot of countries of sending huge amounts of money to Redmond, Washington for software or to Europe that they could get the equivalence by pulling it down that they would normally pay for Oracle or Microsoft or anything else and paying that money to young programmers in their own environment. Money to buy local food, local housing, and pay local taxes. And people say to me, Mad Dog, why do you go to all these countries and tell them to do this? Because don't you want this money to show up, you know, in the United States? You're a United States citizen. You have to understand something. The United States is actually 50 small countries. In the small country of New Hampshire, there's only two things we make in New Hampshire. One of them is maple syrup, and the other is software. I'm tired of sending all of my money to Redmond, Washington, just to buy software for that for free and pay my local programmers. I'm tired of doing that because there's only so much maple syrup that Bill Gates is going to drink. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to spread around 
a little bit of the love, allow my programmers, my young programmers, to be able to pay and buy local food and local taxes, which in turn generates more demand for software. Microsoft has, I think it's about 138,000 people now. I can guarantee you that not all of those have the title of software engineer. Some people paint stripes on the parking lot outside, some are security guards, some work in a cafeteria. If you take the 138,000 people and boil it down, you probably have about 10,000 people who bear the title of software engineer to 26 million people in accounts to GitHub and the 400,000 source software projects. I think that there's some companies that really have to take a hard look at why they're spending a lot of money to get for free. I'm going to agree with that 100%. (laughs) (laughs) All we have to do is get the word out to a lot of other people. But that is one of the things that I try and do. Well, speaking of the things that you try and do, if you would, maybe you could enumerate any of the projects, outline maybe names and websites or contact information for any of the things you're working on right now that um, could use uh, a little support or community participation. That would be great. Unfortunately, they're about six months away from that type of help being needed. But it's Caninas Lucas. C-A-N-I-O-U-S-L-O-U-C-O-S dot org. This is Portuguese for crazy canines. <laughs> and uh, that's the one of building the small computers that are, you know, we're now in the process of manufacturing these in mid. So we're, we're creating seed units, we're creating testing units and stuff like that. At the end of July, we hope to have high volume where we could do about 6,000 a day. And then Project Kawan is P-R-O-J-E-C-T-C-A-U-A dot org. Kind of way for computers to come out because I want to take those little computers, you take the little computer and you add some software called it called Udo to it, O-D-O-O, and magically you have a point of sale in the ERP system, a first connection to the internet and multimedia center that poor people in real computer system would now be able to have nice music, be able to have video off the internet. They'd be able to, you can set it up so that all of their data is stored in the cloud someplace. And then you have Freedom Box, which is a server system that was started by Evan Moglin. The small server at your house where you can store all of your pornographic pictures and stuff like that so that the NSA can't sit there and look at them like Edward, Edward Jordan says they do. <laughs> And it has a whole bunch of other features. If people haven't looked at Freedom Box, it's freedombox.org. Take a look. Wonderful. So all of these things can be put on these little computers we call the Labrador and be sold to make money so that they can go to university. All right. We will make sure to mention all of that stuff in our show notes. Were you actually saying something, Bill? Wow, it's been like hours. (laughs) I know. I know. Sorry. (laughs) I'm just in my own little world over here in uh, Pulse Audio Heck. Guess what? You're going to have to reboot your computer because it's crackling. Oh, my God. <laughs> just do it now before we wrap up. How about up. now? Okay, let me hear it again. Is it, be- is it better? Is it better? Is it better? 
Uh, still a little bit of uh, jumpiness in there. <laughs> hey, you know what? This Linux operating system that we use, it is fantastic. Never <laughs> any problems. Nothing to ever worry about. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, jeez. I'll be back. Uh, all right. Well, John, I really want to thank you for uh, coming by here tonight and telling us about yourself, about the things you're working on, and giving us um, actually uh, an in-depth look at some of the things that had came before where I kind of jumped into the open source world and really didn't know anything about. But we, as soon as Bill decides to like come back, we're <laughs> we're going to actually have to get into some... Uh, to wrap up some show content, you're certainly welcome, John, to stay around um, and and deal with you know the rest of the stuff we do here. Um, I like to hear, I like to hear it. All right, well, you're absolutely you can hang around. I mean, this is a free country and free open source software, and everything <laughs> like that. Uh, okay, let's hear. Bill, are you back? I'm actually on my phone. I'm waiting for my machine to restart. Okay, well, your phone actually <laughs> yeah, sounds, sounds way great. better than your computer, yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, we'll just go with this then. I'll. Uh, I'm using the other Linux uh, computer in the house here. <laughs> uh, well, actually, your phone sounds really tinny and crappy, but at least it's not like Crackling, dropping out. Yeah. So, <laughs> and if anybody who's listening to this who happens to be in one of the chat rooms, either over on Freenode or in the Discord, has any questions for either John or us, uh, feel free to ask them now. We'll address them as as we can. Uh, we do have some uh, at least one announcement and some feedback to get through. So we'll get to that in just a minute. So if you've got a question, cue it up. Okay, well, I don't see anything in the chat room, so let's go ahead and go back to the Etherpad and talk a little bit about our announcements and feedback. Did we talk about the Hamvention YouTube thing on the last episode? We didn't, right? I don't think so. I think we mentioned it because it had just come out um, the morning we recorded. Okay, well, that's entirely possible, but we should probably go ahead and mention it again. If you have not already seen it, the ICQ podcast folks interviewed us at Hamvention. That interview is up on YouTube. A link to it will be in the show notes. So if you haven't seen us talk badly about ourselves, you should probably go check that out. (laughs) Because that's what we do. And you get to see Cheryl, like, stumble through being put on the spot and... Yeah, <laughs> that's that was Martin's fault, and I will never forgive him. No, I'm just kidding. yeah, right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, I, I probably should go into the uh, the comment area and put a recipe up there just for the heck of it. So yeah, yeah you should yeah. do that. That would be great. Actually, they'd probably enjoy the hell out of that. With that, well, that was the only announcement I had. We do have some feedback, though. We've had actually feedback kind of sitting around for a little while. And I do have my email pulled up here, so hopefully it didn't, like, log me out, so I can't see any of this feedback. Uh, the first one is an email from, oh, I hate switching windows. There we go. From James, K5JTB. And this was in reference to John Amadeo's call sign. Remember, we had a little bit of discussion about John Amadeo's call sign. Yeah, and I actually meant to invite John tonight, and I completely forgot. <laughs> James said, this is back on June 5th, so it's been a, a little couple while weeks now. ago, yeah. yeah. Uh, he says in an email, Cheryl was right. Kind of. But, but it turns out you're not. Um, <laughs> I was kind of right. You're kind of right. Kind of right. Kinda right. Kinda yeah. wrong. 
sorry, not to the end of the episode yet. Just wanted to give you a heads up and some feedback. I listen to almost every podcast verbatim. That's from James K five JTB. He sent a a link as well to a photo of a of a QSL card for John Amadeo that showed his call sign as NN six JA. Right. But as we said in the episode, as we were talking about it, that was his call sign. But actually, at the time that John introduced himself to us and allowed us to get our QSL cards onto the set of Last Man Standing, he had changed his call sign to AA6JA, and that's what we said, and that's what we know him as. So, yes, technically he was an N6JA at one time, but we, we never knew him as that. Right. But I'm not sure when his call sign actually changed from one to the other. Um, I have a text from him. He may have said, let me check that out. I do know when he approached Bill and Cheryl and I about our QSL cards, he was AA6JA at that time. So we also have, this is kind of interesting because as far as I can recall, and someone feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about my own podcast, but I have been doing this for 11 years now. So I may have forgotten a thing or two, (laughs) but this is the first voicemail that we've ever received from somebody who said, I'm sending you a voicemail. Here's some information. Don't play this voicemail on the air. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) So I'm not going to play the voicemail on the air. However, I do want to address the information contained within it without revealing who actually sent the voicemail and so on and so forth. So back in episode number 280, we were talking about uh, rulemaking 11.831 that was dealing with changing some of the Part 97 rules relating to encryption. I don't know if anyone associated with the podcast other than myself, because I refreshed my memory an hour ago, uh, remembers what we were talking about with this. Vaguely. Vaguely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so apparently there are some rules that were... Uh, in this rulemaking, you know, thing with the FCC, they wanted to change some rules about something to do with encrypted transmissions. And of course, technically speaking, all encrypted transmissions are illegal in the Part 97 rules. But there was some issue with um, whether or not this had to do with open protocols that dealt with encryption. Or whether it had to do uh, yes. with um, proprietary This is basically a targeted attack at Pactor. Yeah. And the I really wish I could play the voicemail voice because it was enlightening. <laughs> but I'm going to try and paraphrase it as best I can from what I remember of episode 280 and what I listened to in the voicemail. Apparently, this has nothing to do with open source, per se, or open protocols. What it has to do with is the fact that there is some handshaking involved with Pactor protocols and similar protocols and potentially other protocols, which, when you are not privy to one side of the handshake, you cannot decode the message because the handshake includes the decryption algorithm or the decryption key. And if you can't hear it, then you can't decode it. So that would essentially make the conversation or, you know, the the data transfer opaque to you. 
And so I think that was a large part of what this rulemaking was trying to address. And then, according to the caller, there was also some issue having to do with proprietary protocols, which may or may not be open and which may or may not be associated with Pactor or WinLink or, or those things. So he wanted to clarify some of those issues, but because he has said, please don't play this <laughs> voicemail, <laughs> um, I can't really speak to that entirely. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that I pulled out of that was the fact that if you're only hearing one side of a two-way conversation where the decryption key is exchanged in the initial handshake, then you've basically got an encrypted transmission, and they're trying to prevent that in 11.831. There may be more to this story. I don't know. That's that's what I got out of the voicemail. Yeah, that's more uh, terse than uh, what we went over. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I think we kind of extrapolated a little bit more out of it as well, just because uh, I think the article we pulled also kind of went in uh, in, a, in a few different directions as well. You know, basically, you know, uh, I think the hammering point that 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 we uh, we picked out of there was the fact that they wanted all the protocols to be open source. Yes, yeah, I think that was more of a generic response to that particular you know uh, case where you have that you know it, it's in, it's encrypted but the decryption keys are available at the beginning of the conversation but we know as ham radio operators that you know you don't always come to a conversation at the beginning anyway you know when you tune around it's like oh there's something going on there let me figure out what's going on there and i think that's the that's the case that they're trying to, to trying to bring um to hopefully end some of the uh some of the protocols that are, that are currently doing that kind of behavior yeah, absolutely. And I do want to bring up, because I was researching this earlier and I wanted to make sure I had some idea of what I was actually talking about when I <laughs> uh, brought this back up, because we're not able to play the voicemail. I'm looking at a an article on a blog associated with WinLink itself. Uh, this came from winlink.org. And it's a reference to RM11831. And in here it says, the FCC has opened the comment RM11831, a proposal for rulemaking that would do two things to the U.S. amateur radio rules. Number one, remove paragraph C of 97221. This would disallow narrowband ARQ modes of 500 hertz or less from outside the specified 97221 subbands for automatically controlled digital stations. This will require all U.S. Winlink AF or HF gateway stations, regardless of motor technique, to only operate within these narrow subbands. And number two, modify the wording of 97309 subparagraph four. Thusly, an amateur station transmitting a RIDI or data emission using a digital mode specified in the paragraph may use any technique whose technical characteristics have been documented publicly, such as Clover, GTOR, and PACTOR. And the protocol used can be monitored in its entirety by third parties with freely available open source software for the purpose of facilitating communications. And a comment by the editor in this post says, this effectively eliminates Pactor 2, 3, and 4 from the U.S. amateur radio bands unless SCS steps up and publishes complete technical specifications, including their proprietary signal processing methods, and produces an open source monitoring program allowing on-air eavesdropping by third parties. So that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a Pactor hit piece. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they had also mentioned RDOP too, because I think RDOP kind of uh, is uh, is kind of leaning that same direction. 
Yeah, actually, further on in this article, it says the Windling team will have to produce monitoring software for an unconnected eavesdropper for Winmore, RDOP, Vara's author must do the same. All right, so I don't even know where RM11831 is at this point, because that was a little while ago, but I guess it's something to focus on. And if the person who sent us this voicemail would like to elucidate and actually allow us to have his or her voice to give us additional information on this, I I would personally would appreciate it, because I don't necessarily understand all the legalities of all this crap, but I am reporting it as best I know how, under the circumstances. So with that... The first voicemail that we actually can play is from Frank, KF4MH. And we all know who Frank, KF4MH, is. Hi, Russ, Cheryl, and Bill. This is Frank, KF4MH, from the ICQ podcast. Just wanted to give you a call and thank you for the the great interview that you gave us, uh, uh, hosted by Bill Barnes of our team up in Xenia at the Hamvention. Wanted to give you best wishes for a great podcast, and I'll keep listening. 73, folks. Bye-bye. So anyway, that was from Frank, KF4MH, who is uh, part of the ICQ podcast, and he was basically just thanking us for being a part of the ICQ podcast as they came to the United States, went to Hamvention, and uh, actually spent some time to interview us. So Part of them live in the U.S. Well, yes, part of them do live in the U.S., but Colin and Martin are the founders of the podcast. They live in England and Ireland. So. Um, but yeah, and we want to thank uh, Frank actually for manning our booth while yes. that whole thing was going on, <laughs> yeah. and uh, for the whole ICQ team for coming out. And uh, we actually had a—I mean, we only interacted with them for probably twenty twenty-five minutes, but it was great. Um, it was yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I hope we get to do that again sometime. I hope it's actually over there. So I can go visit some distilleries and, you know. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, cancel Hamvention. Let's just go to yeah, Europe. Yeah, just yeah. go to Europe. Hey, yeah. If that's the way this is going to go, I'm all for it. Screw <laughs> Hamvention. I just want to go to the... <laughs> this is going to be a fun one. I don't know that anyone else is actually aware that we got this voicemail. Uh, so, Bill, you can switch over to the stream here real quick. And I'm going to play this voicemail from somebody we know. Hi guys, it's Rich Gordon, uh, new call sign K0 Echo Bravo, former part-time host. <laughs> anyway, I just had a guest recommendation. Uh, Andy Taylor is his name, Mike Whiskey Zero, Mike Whiskey Zulu, and he uh, he developed uh, PyStar with the help of a lot of other people, and PyStar is a... Um, uh, I guess a, an image, a Raspberry Pi image that will um, help you to get your multi-mode digital voice modem, your MMDVM, operating so that you can explore the exciting world of DMR, Yezu System Fusion, NXDN, P25, and all those other groovy, groovy things that happen on an MMDVM. Anyway all those new digital voice modes that are going on. Um, and it is a fantastic piece of software, uh, and I think you'd be a great guest. 7-3. All right. Very good. That was from Rich, our former co-host, former call sign AC0RG. Actually, when he first joined us, he had a call sign other than AC0RG. I don't even remember what it was. Uh, if I think back long enough, I could probably come up with it. But now apparently he's K0EB, and so very cool. And he recommended Andy Taylor, 
of the Pi Star project as a possible um, interview person. And that sounds like a wonderful thing that we should definitely do. And here's the thing, Rich, because you suggested this episode, I think you should be a part of it. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to have to get with him uh, and make sure that whenever we get a, an interview lined up with Andy Taylor of the Pi Star Project, uh, that we have Rich on with us. That would be a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, it would be. So, so there we go. There we <laughs> we, go. We've gotten through all of the feedback. We've gotten through uh, our discussion with John Mad Dog Hall. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know him, all of his projects are lined up. I mean, if you search for Mad Dog Hall or even Mad Dog, you're probably going to you're going to find, find him. him. Yeah, yep. <laughs> uh, he has dropped out of the audio chat, which I certainly understand at this point. Yeah, he said he had to go because he had uh, morning meetings. So. Okay, uh, absolutely. Uh, but we definitely want to thank John for coming on and talking to us tonight. It's been a really, really long time since I've talked to John. I mean, yeah, a passing message here or there on Facebook or something, but uh, to actually have yeah, a to actually have a real right. conversation with the man, it's been years, many, many years. Yep. So uh, it was fascinating to me to hear about all of that stuff. And when I go back and think about all of the things I did in my early computing life, he has me by twenty years easy. So, um, but that was really cool. So, uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning into this episode of Linux in the Hamshack for uh, hanging out with us in our chat room, uh, whether by Discord or Freenode IRC. And uh, make sure you tune in next week. We'll have our short topic episode, and of course the Weekender, so you don't want to miss that. Uh, and in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. I guess we should probably talk about the people who uh, were in the chat room. I know we had Don KBTYSI, we had Don KC9ZMY, we had Ted W0EIR. Uh, we had a new call sign that was in there not that long ago. It was, I'm scrolling back up and I'm like hemming and hawing as I scroll back up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, we had KG7AFL. I don't think he was listening to the show necessarily, but he was in earlier asking questions about various things, which was really cool. I want to thank him for doing that. There was W6BZY. That's it, W6BZY, uh, who was in earlier. Uh, we also had Simstick, who says, good show. Yay. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. And uh, we had John Hall, who was, of course, in uh, our live chat. So... Uh, with that, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. I want to thank everybody for listening and make sure you tune into the next one. This has been episode number 289 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ K5TUX. I'm Cheryl W5MOO. And I'm Bill NE4RD73. listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The live show is recorded every Monday night at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at url.bcts.info stroke LHS live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info. You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page at patreon.com stroke LHS podcast 
or by using the contribute link on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash NHS podcast on the Freenode network and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke discord. You can also drop us an email at info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1-909-NHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show-themed merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a local Linux convention or handfest. Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info for more information or visit the homepage for details. Until next time, remember to always heed your hedonism. Shack and the Linux in the Hamshack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Um, we didn't interrupt you, John, did we? <laughs> oh, I was more or less finished talking about the um, wonders of 2019, although other events that, like 30 years, 25 years, National Institute, as an example, started in 1999, so this is our 20th year of certifying open source professionals. We have 150,000 certified people in over 180 countries around the world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very exciting for us this year. Indeed. All right. Well, I saw, I saw KB2YSI in there briefly, and I saw KC9ZMY in there briefly, but they have both <laughs> bailed. <Is that> right. <laughs> so... You're also really low in the Discord again. Yeah, I know, and and I thought I see so it was bringing up audio on my end. Yeah, t- um, the input volume. See, I'm bringing up the input volume on my side. Is that helping at all? Oh, that makes well, it yeah, it's way too much, but that's uh, it's definitely that. Okay, so is that better? Oh yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect, right there. Still yeah, a little, maybe. little down. Yeah, a little down. Okay, how about right there? One, two, no, three, four, there. five, six. <laughs> Yeah, just don't yell. You'll be fine. <laughs> okay. Do it. Do I need to like? Do I need to bring it down just oh, a little? Yeah, uh, you yeah, need bring to bring it down. down Actually, more. where you were, be- where you were at the beginning, I thought was best. Okay, so here's where I'm at now. One, two, three, four, five, six. A little lower. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh yeah, I think that's better. Found the sweet spot. Okay. Yeah, I got to figure out why my why my snap package is failing. Oh my god.
All right. Well, Don, uh, Don and Don, <laughs> um, jump back in and see if it see if it works for you. You're probably going to have to kill the stream if you obviously get into the chat, but we'll see what happens. I guess I'm I'm my my like I'm wandering away from the microphone. So if I get quiet a little bit, that's not the audio path. That's me. Well, this this might turn out to just be an interview with Mad Dog if we uh, <laughs> if nothing else happens, but that that'd be fine. I have no issue with that. I, when I I guess when I was back in New Hampshire a few weeks ago, you were elsewhere. To think about where I was. He was there over uh, the week the week before Memorial Day. Yeah, yeah, I was there from the nineteenth through the twenty third or some something where along there of May. Let's see. Don says he can't hear anything in the chat, and I'm suspecting that's because there's an audio configuration issue in his Discord client. And there he goes. <laughs> and he's back. I'll wait for a signal report. The only thing that I see is starting on May the 27th, I had to Canada. There was a meeting up there about open government. thousand people from all around the world. The, the conversation was more about the government being open than using open source in the government. I didn't find it as interesting as I could have. And to Toronto, Canada, to a summit of the Linux Professional Institute, I think my health problems. For the last week and a half, I've been trying to stay alive. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that yeah. on Facebook. Obviously, so. you have uh, bigger concerns. <laughs> and I can tell from a test sample of one, public health in Canada is certainly no worse than the than the health that we have here in the United States. Right. And the only difference is that when you're discharged, they just wave at you and say goodbye, and you don't have to fill out reams and reams of paperwork and receive whole bunches of six months telling you, well, this person you owe money to, and this person you owe money to. Right. Right. I, I have to say, the last couple of times I've had any sort of outpatient procedure, the the amount of paperwork has been cut significantly. So now but there's still paperwork, and there you still is. get billed. And yeah. inpatient, on the other hand, is a nightmare. Uh, I I think a lot of that really depends upon your insurance company and how good your insurance plan is. Because if it's if it's not a real good coverage and stuff like that, well, then there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes on through to you. Good policy, and you know, and you, particularly if you've met your deductible for the year, then they're just going to eat it all. Right. Yep. Yeah. Luckily, he's Russ's insurance is semi decent. It's not terribly bad. Luckily, his company pays for his insurance, so the only out-of-pocket we have is the $1,000 or $1,200, whatever it is, deductible each year. <clears throat> but for whatever reason, you know, our, our local hospitals, anytime he's gone to the ER or been admitted, you know, sometimes they're like, here, sign this, and other times they walk in with a cart full of paperwork and go, okay, let's start signing and it gets a little overwhelming after a while, so, but... Yeah, my favorite part is when they hit you up for all the registration information when you're just getting into the hospital. It's like, you know, you know, I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack or whatever, and they're like, uh, can we confirm your address, name, points of contact, et cetera? How you're <laughs> going like, to pay this bill. Right, how you're you going to pay the bill and all that, yeah. 
Three years ago, when I did have my heart attack, there wasn't any of that question. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's nice. Good. That's yeah. nice yeah. They just looked at me and said, you're having a heart attack. And boom, I was in the uh, operating room. And th- this was early in the morning. And they said, oh, my God, where's where's the electrician? Where's the, no, 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 where's the plumber? Where's the plumber? The plumber isn't here. The electrician is. Like, what are you guys? You're building a house? I'm having a heart attack, right? <laughs> Well, come to find out, the electrician is the person who worries about the signals that go to your heart to tell right. it whether it's beating too fast or too slow or stuff like that. And the plumber is the person who puts in the stents to open up the arteries to allow your heart to, to be fortunately from it. And even though the electrician was perfectly capable of doing plumbing, was one of the best in New England. So I did get the plumber. He came in at the last moment. And, and in a week, I was reunited with the plumber again. So... Uh, He's, he's a real character. His, his name is Dr. Craig Berry, and he is he is really something. It's always nice when you find a, a physician that has a good bedside manner as well as being really good at what he does. No, 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 no. He has a side. He calls me fat. He, <laughs> he says, you're fat. He's, he says, you've got two strikes against you, you know. So because of Dr. Berry and his wonderful bedside manner, I've decided to lose weight and past three weeks i've lost about 20 pounds wow good okay then you must have you must have gained about 20 pounds since the last time i saw you because the last time i saw you you were about the size of my forearm (laughs) (laughs) well that that may that may be i mean i've i've gone up and down in weight over the years and uh and and one time i was 270 lose weight i got all the way down to 196 right okay yeah, well, and, uh, when I saw you, I going back up again. right? When we saw you the last time, the only time I can remember actually seeing you was in Spartanburg and Oh, hi, uh, Linux Fest. Uh, okay, I will laugh. I, but, think, I think that was the last time. Yeah, even then, well, whatever time that was, you were nowhere near two seventy. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's get started with uh, with the podcast here, and you know, we can talk about my health and my, and my <laughs> forever. We we can talk about nothing forever. You haven't listened, apparently. No, uh, no. I, I I must admit, I'm sorry. I'm not a <laughs> podcast. I, I think this is one of the first times, if the only time, I've ever done a podcast. So, well, well we're we're honored then. <laughs> and so you know, and I, I don't listen to them too much either for some reason. That's okay. I I don't either. So in any okay, case, I'm on my computer. All right, you sound better. Yeehaw. So how's the stream? Still holding me up? Uh, I'll check here in a second. You're, again, low here. <laughs> I, 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 there's nothing I can do. I don't think my audio is self-adjusting. As I said, my my I am wandering away from the microphone from time to time, but... Yeah, okay. Well, that's, it's good enough, though. Okay. I mean, I can so bring it up could, just a hair. Turn, well, you're, you're fine, Russ, but is, is this Don I'm talking to? Because you could lower your, your input a little bit, I think. I think he's talking to you, okay. Bill. We're getting all sorts of updates in the okay. Discord channels right here, so... Yep. Don said he had to turn me up. Simstick says I sound fine. Sound fine to me. <laughs> John says I sound fine, so I don't know I don't know what to do. Yeah, you're a little low on the stream, too, compared to everybody else, but I think it'll be fine. You can figure it, uh, fix it all. Well, I can right? assure you that we're all good in my headphones, which means we're good on the recording, so if it's a little weird on the stream, that will not... Uh, play out, so. anything, right? <laughs> yeah, should be fine. 
Apparently, uh, KC9ZMY is having issues with discordant audio. Uh, <clears throat> Let's see, Don says he had to turn Bill and John down, so that's okay. Well, that's all right. <laughs> I, I think we've got it more or less sorted out. Kind of. Except I probably should grab a cocktail real quick. Um, let's see, where are we at time-wise here? Oh, it's only 8.20. Uh, oh, it's only 8.18. Hey, we're golden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still early. Yeah, we're super early. <laughs> <laughs> hey, because usually it's, what, 10 o'clock before we probably well, get started? Not quite yeah. that bad, but we're usually well past 8.30. So, um, I don't want to keep John too long. Yes. Although I'm... He's yeah. an hour yeah, they see he's already asleep. Yeah, he's already so. out. <laughs> Hopefully, you've been recording already, right? I am yes, recording. Yes. yes. Are you recording yours? Well, side? we haven't been really talking about Linux, right? I mean, I'm I'm here, so we could we could talk about. Well, we Linux. talked about the fi- the fifty years of the different things that's been going on over the last fifty years. So, that's, yeah, that's all, all of that hasn't been Linux, right? Well, no, no, no but U- Unix and uh, various other things, right? Yeah. Oh, well, see, to really appreciate it back. Beyond before Unix, okay, have a mainframe computer that would cost two point four million dollars and be able to run one program at a time in its megabyte of main memory. And you had a whole bunch of people who would be surrounding it called operators start the program going and they would stop the program. And if your program said print, out to the line printer, you know, there was no spooling. And so your program, if it was doing I.O., the I.O. was slowing down your program, slowing down the computer, because it was writing out to this impossibly slow device called a printer. <laughs> Cards. <laughs> it was reading it in at an impossibly slow rate. Okay. <clears throat> State of the art back in, say, 1973. And, and there's a lot of people who think an operating system started to be written operating systems, companies for an operating systems to lock their customers in to their equipment. That I was back in those days, and I never, ever heard that conversation happen, was how can we make our operating system possibly expensive, slow piece of shitty hardware? Oh, oh can I say that word? Yeah, yes, yes you can. <laughs> slow hardware, so that our, our customers, and if if lock if locking somebody into your hardware was the main goal, then Digital Equipment Corporation would not need like eleven different operating systems on their PDP eleven, RT eleven for real time, uh, RSX eleven for kind of real time slash time sharing, AS for health stuff. We had Vistas E for education system. We had all these different operating systems, and we wouldn't have needed. We only would have needed one. That that's a an urban legend, I think. And maybe there was a marketing person with some type of wet dream or something about locking people in. <laughs> We're all about things more efficient. Well, that that may not have been the case in the past, but I think it might be the case in the present. Well, you know, I mean, the, the certain people take certain pride in doing things engineers in the early days of Unix, engineers from DEC and Hewlett-Packard and IBM all getting together at a Eustix conference is about how to make things better. No. And out of that, we got some things like NFS, we got X-Windows systems, you know. I mean, for yes, Sun tried to press 
which news of ways was better than X, but not. And they eventually X and put X in for compatibility and stuff like that. So there's a lot of history there, but it was the engineers were just simply trying to make things better, more efficient. Right. Up That's to what an, I saw. Up, up to and including shortening the names of commands, which is why we still have things like LS instead of list and so on. <laughs> well, I mean, those, those shortened commands were, you know, came out of Unix. And you have to understand where Unix really came from. You know, Ken Thompson was working on a system called Multics. And that was a operation between a whole bunch of different organizations, MIT, AT&T, GE, I think, was in there, Oak Rubin, you know, a whole bunch of different this. And AT&T started thinking about, uh-oh, we're working on computers and operating systems, and the government was making all sorts of AT&T being a monopoly. And the government's saying, why are you working on computing systems? Because it's obvious that telephones don't need computers. A little bit. The government's saying, you know, telephone companies don't need computers. Thompson was taken off of that and brought back to New Jersey to work on some other stuff. And Ken was unhappy about that because he liked working on operating systems. Found the cast-off PDP-7 computer hallway, literally turned off, and uh, said, can we play with this? Sure, because I mean, Bell Labs was a pure research facility. Did pure research. And out of that, you kept some things that went on to advanced development, and then some things that went on to, you know, product development and things like that. So, you know, you got the transistor, you got a lot of work with lasers and stuff like that. But go ahead and work on this. And uh, Ken Thompson listed Dennis Ritchie, first version of Unix in assembly language, machine language, an assembler on the PDP-7. So what they had to do is they had to go to another computer that had a cross-assembler, put on that, punch out a paper tape, take it to the pa- take the paper tape to, to PDP-7, and do the ASR-33 teletype. Yeah, ASR <laughs> teletype. Well, that can read and write five characters. Notice I didn't say bytes. And they loaded in this binary tape, and then they would say run, and of course, almost immediately it would crash. And then they have to use little switches on the PDP-7 with the lights to debug. And they would go back to the original computer, make the changes they needed to make, and make the next paper tape. This continued to go on until the rudimentary version of Unix out of it. And then the PDP-7 ran out of steam. Space didn't have enough memory. And so they tried to get another computer, which had much more space and power PDP-7 had. They, uh, they tried to get that, but their department would not buy it for them because this was a lot of money. Going around to all the other departments at Bell Labs and saying, you know, could you buy this computer for us so that we could system? And oh, one by one, the different departments said no found the department inside of AT&T that had all the money in the world. They had money like it was no tomorrow. People say, what department was that? Was it such and so research? Nah. It was the legal department. (laughs) They were the ones that had money like there was no tomorrow because, after all, 
they wrote all the legal papers for patents and copyrights and stuff like that. And uh, they just generated huge amounts of money. Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie had convinced them that this computer system to write up all of their legal briefs them with T Roth. Pause for a moment and let that sink in. If any of you have ever programmed T Roth, if we're, if we're playing the back in my day game, I'm going to concede to you right now. <laughs> oh, are, are, you, are you familiar with tech? Are you familiar with tech? Yes, tech format. It's a lot like tech. Okay, it's a text formatting language. You know, through this language, you tell text formatter how you want to have your text formatted. In the middle of your text, you put these little control characters and stuff, which then indent and unindent and bolden and stuff like that, does all the rest for you. And they, you know, so imagine now sitting down and using a text editor on an ASR33 teletype. A line editor, it's not a full screen editor, it's a dot editor. You have to memorize in your mind, in your file. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to look up ASR33 teletype just so I know what we're talking about. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, it was a beautiful machine, and it just made more noise than a, light, a thunderstorm on a good day. <laughs> it's a way to turn, in- turn uh, assembly language code into noise, huh? Yes. So, so, so let me tell you what it's like to program an assembly language with an ASR33 teletype and paper tape input-output, okay? First thing you do is you have to toggle in the bootloader for whatever operating system you want to run, and then you get the operating system running, and then you 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 load in your text editor, which is paper tape, about five minutes to load that text editor in. And then you type in your program, and you then tell the text editor to write to punch that paper that, that program out on paper tape. And it will punch it out and at the same time it creates a listing of it for you. But the listing doesn't have any addresses or anything because the program has not been assembled. So is you load in your assembler and that's a much bigger program. It takes about 15 minutes of reading that into the ASR32 teletype. And then you're all set to pass your source code of your program through it. You pass it through one time and that table for your program. Second time and it actually then prints out the the, the binary for the assembly language program, binary tape, say, oh, I'm all set. No, you're not set to run that because you really do need to have a listing. ASR33 teletype can either punch the binary tape or it can't do both at the same time. So one more pass of your source code tape through and with all the addresses of where everything is. And now you're all set to take your binary tape and load that into your machine and run it do of course it overwrites all of memory it blows up everything and you start all everything all over again from the beginning so even the simplest program at least an hour even if you have even if you don't make any changes to your source code just to go through the editor the assembler then take you at least an hour for even a two-line program that's what you're dealing with back in those days well i have that's to say those programmers from those <laughs> That's, That's why most programmers from those days just check their programs so well times they can get them to run and you know, or maybe the second try or the third one. It's not like a lot of they 
who just keep trying over again without looking at it, without thinking about it, you know, because it's just so quick to pull up the text editor to where you have an interpreter, which is, you know, you change it and it's done. But in any case, Ken, <laughs> Ken and Dennis, uh, they, of course, had to rewrite the entire Unix system because this was a different machine language. The PDP-11 was a different machine language than the PDP-7. Unix working on the PDP-11. And about that time, Dennis said, ooh, this is too much like work, so I'm going to invent the language C. We write Unix again because they wanted to rewrite it in C. And we're finished, you know. Then somebody comes along and says, hey, could you put that on the Interdata 832 in C? But the Interdata 832 has a completely different structure than the DEP-11. We write it again, you know, separating the parts of the kernel. Parts of the kernel which are dependent on the bus structure or the I.O. That. And so, as they poured it from machine architecture to machine architecture, they got better and better of separating out the device-independent parts of the code from the device-dependent parts of the code. So you see, there was not this grand scheme from the very beginning of making Unix portable across systems. It was a very pragmatic thing that happened. So, about that time, Ken Thompson, he loved going on sabbaticals. He loved going to universities and teaching about operating system design and stuff like that. And of course, he'd take his favorite operating system on a magnetic tape when it needs design and use that to talk to the students. And one of the universities he just went to was the University of California, Berkeley. He had a great deal of interest in this little operating system. Ken was there teaching. They would you know, start putting out ideas and stuff like that and incorporating that ideas back with them to Bell Labs. But some of them just stayed out of Berkeley. And that was the beginning of the BSD distribution, or the BSD operating system, I should say, because they weren't distributing it then at that time. Just to distribute it meant that whoever got it, source code license, you didn't get the binaries, you got the source code, and AT&T's source code was mixed in with source code. And so... In order to get, for a research university, you could get a site-wide license code for Unix because you're doing research dollars deal. But if you were a small two-year technical college, eight technical college, well, you didn't qualify as a research university, so the price was $160,000 per CPU to give them the serial number of your CPU. Now, listeners... How many of you know the serial number of your laptop? Like you're all slackers. <laughs> uh. So not many people got to see the source code at that time, right? Later on, AT&T changed their licensing so that they said, hey, you can't show the source code up like that because that's proprietary to AT&T. So, but at that time, you know, Ken was going around with this little tape and looking it there and the University of California, Berkeley, was working on So about that time, the people at Stanford University gather a bunch of chips on a little single board computer. They uh, decided they wanted to make a workstation out of it. And that's because workstations were still impossibly expensive. A single board computer could come together and you know be sold at a reasonable price. And they started looking around for different operating systems. You know, I mean, then we could have CPM system, but... That was a really weak, miserable, crappy little operating system for something as powerful as a single-board computer they had. What about, they even thought about VMS from DEC. And they went to talk with 
Ken Olson at uh, Maynard. Ken Olson said no, and that's probably just as well because a lot of VMS was written in Bliss at that time. It would have been very hard to port. DOS, and they said no because that was just as VM was. But then somebody said, well, what about Unix? Unix because, hey, you know, Stanford and Berkeley are out on the West Coast. They're very close together. And there was this guy named Bill Joy. Uh, we could use Berkeley Unix, and all we need to do is get a license from AT&T. AT&T, and they said, well, we understand about the source code license and everything, but what happens if we only distribute this in binary form? You know, could we get a lot lower cost and maybe not have to tell people what the serial number of the CPU is and stuff? Looked at that and said, yeah, looks good to us. Told the company Sun Microsystems. It's under Sun OS. Started to create this workstation based on Sun OS. And it was, for the time, it was really cheap. Started handing them out like popsicles to developers and saying, port your code to this. And a lot of the other companies that had been dabbling with Unix were kind of caught flat footed. Flat footed, DEC was hardware support to. System 5 Unix and some Berkeley Unix. Actually, back in those days, it was System 3. And they uh, they said, oh, man, we could we could put our own operating system out. So Ultrix and then uh, various, and then eventually Ultrix 32 for the for the Vax, and then eventually for the Alpha, there's Deco OSF1 and Digital Unix. IBM had AIX, um, HP UX, and all of them were cranking out Unix systems. Most of them for a couple reasons. Berkeley included Tyler's, Fortran, Pascal, and C. System 5 only had C and Fortran. Second reason was that System 5 was only a swapping system, man page virtual memory. And so as a swapping system, you're more or less to how much real RAM memory you had. Virtual memory, you're restricted to how much swapping and paging space you had. What a program of, back in those days, unthinkable size of 32 bits. And the, but the third reason was that System 5 only had UUCP to do networking, Unix to Unix copy, using serial ports system. And Berkeley Unix had TCP IP because that allowed you to network your systems like nobody had ever imagined before. So most of the systems that were released that day, those days, and it generated a little cottage industry market for a company called Wollongong, who released a TCP/IP version that sit on top of System 5. You buy this separate package from Wollongong, so you could have TCP/IP on System 5, you could have TCP/IP on MS-DOS systems and, and other operating systems, so you can communicate back and forth. Um, so that, you know, people got started with commercial systems. But there was one person who was a little upset about this, a student down at MIT whose name was Richard Stallman liked getting Unix systems in source code. He liked seeing how they worked. He liked the ability to be able to write device drivers and things like that. And more and more, he found out that it was harder and harder for him to actually get a distribution of source code form. So he eventually decided to start the GNU project. GNU is not Unix. There's still he came out with the Free Software Foundation to help to support that project. The project he did was, of course, to create Emacs. People think that he could have stopped with Emacs. Emacs is like an entire operating system. It does lack a good text editor, though. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a, note, it's a, a running joke. You you have to know that. I mean, but as a side note, uh, many years later, Alan Cox took one of the original kernels of Linux and put it that to a two megabyte Palm Pilot. Actually, got it to work. Oh, Palm Pilot! And with, wow. with <laughs> two megabytes with enough space left over that you could actually run Vim on it. The Emacs, because there wasn't enough storage space for it. So, uh, you know, Richard got Emacs, and, and it was the brilliant part of this was that he got Emacs to run across all these different operating systems, not just Unix, and not just variants of Unix, but VMS, you know, MV, you know all, the, all, MVT, all the different operating systems could run Emacs. And so if you were a code developer on all these different operating systems, if you learned Emacs, you knew that you'd be able to do your code on that. And then, of course, he did, he did the compiler suite, he did compilers. And you had the same compilers, the same syntax and semantics across all these different operating systems. And that you could number of if-defs in your code dramatically because you weren't trying to code around all the different mistakes or differences, semantics of all these different compilers, C compilers, Fortran compilers, right? And reducing the number of if-defs means that you had you could reduce the number of the do in order to make sure your code worked. Companies that understood all of this was Bowie. And all, we're, we, we want to have support for suites. And that's when a few people started the company of sickness support for suites. And so... You know, when people start to say you can't make money with free software, you can sell support. You can sell whole bunches of things. You can even sell the software, but the problem was because the software was free, too much profit out of it, well, then somebody would just want to cut you. Oh, but people did make money, and Cygnus did make money, and eventually Cygnus was purchased by Red Hat. Still, in effect, still continues today. So then Richard went on and did a whole bunch of stuff and really worked on the kernel. And the reason for that was if he started the kernel back in 1984, there would be nothing to run on it. And he said, you know, now it'll be obsolete by the time I get everything else done. And so he did everything else. And by 1994, or 1991, most of that was done. But suddenly came along this university student, the one that was born in 1969. And he said, hey, you know, I want to do an operating system. And Dennis Ritchie wanted to do their operating system just for fun. I want to do it just for fun, as big and complex as Minix. Just a fun little project. And people started joining him, operating system. Not one, no, they didn't really, that, they wanted to create a great operating system. Operating system. But still, a lot of them didn't have the vision, didn't really see the vision as important as it is. Because a whole bunch of things came together at one time, was coming into the home, not just the university, not just work, but actually into people's homes. It's a really powerful processor that could support the man page virtual memory was not only out, but you could actually have one that you could dedicate to this project you had. And there was a whole bunch of information on the net, as an example, systems and how they worked and how you could make them better. This stuff together with a bunch of really good engineers make the first Linux kernels. And then, around 1994, 
they had taken the kernel to a certain place, they decided to call it version 1.0. All the other GNU software that we put this up and all the software from MIT places and bring it together, some software from Berkeley, and bring it together, distribution, soft landing systems, a bunch of them that have disappeared, but also a fledgling red hat again, downloading this magical thing and putting it on their systems and couldn't believe not only free of costs, free as in freedom. Well, I've been wailing on for a while now, and if any students have comments, I'll take a breath and pause and maybe drink some iced tea, or make whatever comments you want to make. 